Hello, and welcome to Rocket Talk. This is Justin Landon, your ever-present host, coming back again with a delightful, delightful interview. I am joined tonight by Patrick S. Tomlinson. He lives in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is, as we know, is the hotbed of hotbeds. He's a stand-up comedian and author with a debut novel out the first week of November from Angry Robot Books. It's called The Ark. Welcome, Patrick. Hello. Thanks for having me. So uh, is me referring to Milwaukee as the hotbed of hotbeds an accurate statement? I, I moved here about four years ago, and I would have laughed then, but now Milwaukee's an interesting place. I've really enjoyed living here, and uh, I've, I've enjoyed watching the progress that our, that our little city that could has, has started to make. There are tower cranes all over the place downtown, uh, just about a half a mile from where I live. There's like all of these old abandoned lots are now being, are, are now having, you know, uh, uh, condos and townhouses and apartment complexes and, and new businesses being built into them. Uh, it's, it's the downtown area is going through a revitalization that, uh, mirrors the kind of thing that I saw only when I was living down in Florida, you know, almost 10 years ago now, uh, before the crash, you know, where like they, uh, just, just, there's obviously a lot of money flowing around and this place is cool. And there's a bunch of different scenes from, from comedy to stage acting that are, that are really in ascendance. And I'm, I'm very happy to be a part of some of that culture in the city. That is a much better answer than I was expecting. <laughs> I like it here. I do. I think we're finding too that like the Midwest is like writer's paradise here in the Midwest between uh, you know like Milwaukee and Chicago, um, and you know there's there's quite a few people, uh, quite a few very successful people living like over in Ohio, and these are not like what you would normally consider to be hotbeds of activity, but the cost of living is reasonable, and there's still areas there that are that are eclectic and large enough and culturally diverse enough to really you know, let you branch out and, and let you experience more than you could in, in some other areas of the country. Um, yeah, it's a, it's not a bad time to be a Midwestern author. Like the, the divide, the divide is not so much between like coastal and, and like, you know, flyover country anymore. The divide is really becoming between cities and, and, and rural areas. Yeah, I would, I think I would agree with that. You mentioned in there that you have there's a comedy scene in Milwaukee, and you're a you are a comedian. When we grew up reading science fiction and fantasy, like the the notion of like the comedic fiction was a thing. You know, like we had like the uh, you know, Hitchhikers, we had Robert Asprin, and of course Sir Terry Pratchett. Mm-hmm. Like all of these were published publishing prolifically, and like mm-hmm. comedic science fiction and fantasy was like like a real thing. I don't know that it was, I don't know that the publishing industry ever saw it as a real thing. I saw, I think that they saw Douglas Adams and Terry Pratchett as aberrations from the norm, which is why, like, I mean, even you, as well read as you are, you had to sit there and think for a second outside of Terry Pratchett and Douglas Adams. It's like, okay, who else? I, in fact, I wrote a, uh, an article for Tor. Uh, a month ago, a month and a half ago or something, or it was like, you know, five science fiction books that, that, you know, bring comedy elements. And I set out to write it saying, okay, I'm not going to include Hitchhiker's Guide and I'm not going to include any of the Discworld novels. I'm going to go outside of that because those are the obvious ones. And there was such a dearth outside of that. So it was, it's such a bizarre thing to me because you have, you have Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Universe and Terry Pratchett's Discworld Universe, which are two of the best-selling universes, period, 
in the in genre and they're not it's not that they aren't given respect but it's that they are they seem to be viewed as oh well that was the exception to this rule where we just don't go there maybe it was because they were just so damn good at it that they were like that the you know, publishing industry has been like well nobody's going to match pratchett or or adams so why even bother but that just seems like i, I don't know from my perspective cuz you know being both a sci-fi writer and uh and a legitimate stand-up comedian that seems so weird to me because you get one halfway decent zombie bondage novel come out and all of a sudden there's 10,000 more of them following it within six months to try and chase that trend. So why did nothing ever chase that trend? I don't, I don't understand it and I would uh, very much like to change it personally, but they, you know, there uh, Del Rey published uh, a book a couple years ago called year zero by Rob Reed. I don't know if you have, have seen that. I have not. It's, it's very funny. Rob Reed is the guy who, uh, I think he's married to Morgan Webb. Okay. <laughs> and he, uh, he owned Rhapsody, was his company, mm. the music okay. company. And yeah, sure. Uh, there was like a competing with Napster at that same era. And so he wrote about aliens and intellectual property rights. Aliens have been stealing our music for decades. And it turns out that they owe the, the world uh, a great deal of debt as a result oh. of stealing our music. Okay. And, and, it, and so they're going to destroy Earth rather than pay the debt. <laughs> that sounds awesome. I've it, never heard of that one. I it, need to look it up. It's hilarious. You know, it came out to what seemed to be a whimper. I don't think sold particularly well, and, and I don't think Rob has published since, and certainly not hasn't published, like, another comedy novel from Del Rey, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and it, it frustrates me because the book is brilliant, and you'll see some other people kind of do some, some kind of funny things here and there, but my, my theory is that it's all tied to we just want to take ourselves too seriously in genre. Like there's the desire to be like literary or be like uh, uh, critically successful. I can see that up to a point actually uh, when you phrase it that way, because I can see how like our, our movement of, of nerds and geeks has been trying so hard for so long to be taken seriously. But at the same time, I've been finding some success, not just with, with the crossover stuff that I do, because I, I run this thing called Cthulhu's comedy collective. I, I put together a nerdy stand-up comedy showcase, and I host it, and then I bring in five or six other comedians who I know personally who have had, uh, who, who are, are not only good stand-ups, but are massive nerds. And so they'll have, turns out that just like me, they all end up writing all this material, whether it be, you know, Star Wars or Doctor Who or Back to the Future or Pokemon or whatever it is, that they think is hilarious to them, but will not work in front of, let's call them mundane audiences. And then I give them this outlet where they can dump this stuff in front of crowds that they know are going to be sympathetic and are and know are going to get the jokes. And it's been just awesome. So I, I no longer subscribe to the idea that that the market isn't ready for it, not just because of what I've done, because like Cthulhu's has started going around to conventions in here in the Midwest. And we've, we've played to, you know, rooms of two or three hundred con goers and they love us. And we're, we're gonna try to expand that outside of the Midwest once somebody starts paying for our airfare. But we've, we've had a tremendous amount of success for it, with it. And I think that other properties like Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, Futurama, like there's obviously an audience for, for humorous yet still respectful and intellectual sci-fi humor. It's out there. It's just people need, people need to, to bite off on it. I read like Schlock Mercenary, right? We know the webcomic is clearly comedic sci-fi. Oh, totally. It's just not novelized. It seems like it's like a comic strip is safe. 
I, I just think kind of like a like a good dragon dick joke is just not something that, that a lot of nerds I think are comfortable saying, like putting out there is like this is the thing. Can't help but think so much has to do with editors. Cause I, I think it's probably being written, but we're just not being published. I know it's being written because I just rewrote my very first novel, which was a sci-fi comedy uh, that actually started life out as Douglas Adams fanfic, as it happens. And that was why I started on this path to becoming an author was because I read the whole five book trilogy of Hitchhiker's Guide and was so upset at the way it ended. And of course I read it in like 2008. So then I was like, is there going to be a sixth book and only to find that they died like in 2001. So obviously not. Um, and the, the first novel I wrote was based off of my early attempts to write the sixth book. I wrote like the first three chapters before I found out that, uh, uh and Koifer was coming out with and another thing. And then I went back and was like, well, you know, this was, this was obviously a vanity project. And I sent it, I sent like the first three chapters out to a handful of friends and said, Hey, look at this silly thing I did. And they all came back and said, no, this is really good. You should like do something with this. So I took it back. I, I, I scraped off everything that was, you know, either characters within the hitchhikers universe or, or tied into that at all, which of course meant I was just left with, you know, some jokes. <laughs> Because by the time you file all those serial numbers off, there's really nothing left except a handful of jokes. And so then I ended up building a world and characters and a plot and everything and stuck those jokes into this new thing. And that became the first novel I wrote. And it didn't ever find any traction. But now that I have a, a deal with Angry Robot for a couple of books and a, a, a very serious agent, um, I rewrote it massively and submitted it just a couple of weeks ago. So we'll see what he has to say about it and what he thinks about it. Well, I'm excited. I, I think we'll see. You know, I, that's this. all the editors that are out there came up amid all of the same stuff that we did. Yeah, stuff. and that's, that is the thing that confuses me, because it's like, you know, everybody in the industry, it's, it's not like they haven't heard of Douglas Adams or Terry Pratchett. And it's like, why, why is it you don't want to try and find the next... One of those guys. I wonder if part of it is there's no mid-list comp. Yeah, yeah, you can hold up Pratchett and Adams, but it's kind of like, okay. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know, <yeah>. sure. <laughs> You're not Pratchett Adams, kids, yeah, so what like, do you think? It's like yeah. holding up like a climate change book and being like, it's like the wind-up girl, you know, and you're like, well, <laughs> you know, there's probably only one of those. So, right. uh, but there's not a lot of mid-list comps. Well, and that's, that's kind of what I was saying earlier. It's just like uh, Hitchhikers and Discworld continue to be seen as the exceptions to the rule. You know, the aberrations, the deviations from, from the mean instead of the potential for the next, you know? Yeah, I, I completely agree. So instead of theorizing what you might publish in the future, you mm. have a book coming out uh, as of this recording five days, Tuesday, uh, November 3rd. 3rd, also Election Day. Also Election Day, yeah. Which is exciting. <laughs> I mean, pretty much nationwide, probably the most boring election ever, considering that we're all watching presidential debates. Right. But your book, The Ark, is, is about... A generation ship. Why don't you give a little more information than that? The Ark is a uh, murder mystery thriller that is set on a generation ship about one month away from reaching its destination. Uh, it is a, to coin a phrase, a sealed airlock murder mystery. Um, the, the people on board have been on there for 230 years, I think. I think we're at 230. We're on the 11th generation of people who have, who have, uh, you know, been born on, onto this ship. Anybody who was from Earth is 
that, that got on initially is long, long dead. And they're there because the Earth was, was destroyed by a rogue black hole uh, named Nibiru that they saw coming, and they had about 80 years to do anything about it. They couldn't deflect it. It's not an asteroid. It's a damn black hole. Uh, so they they built a they built a generation ship, which was literally the only way I could think of to get uh, all of these naked apes on this planet to stop fighting each other long enough to actually try to save themselves and commit the political and manpower and economic resources that would be necessary to actually build a ten mile long starship um, in, in that kind of span of time. So it's it's out. It's about to get there, and somebody goes missing which is a weird thing to happen even on a 10-mile-long spaceship because there's only so many places to hide. And they bring in a uh, former sports star who has been kind of uh, awarded the, the job of chief of police, uh, I guess is what we would say over here. You know, he's chief constable, which he was kind of awarded as, a, as an honorary thing because there just isn't much crime on board because everything's tracked, like you know, down to the calories that you're eating are tracked. And this is the first like really big actual legitimate mystery that he has to face because everything else has been this little niggling stuff where he's dealing with conservation code infractions and, and stuff like that. And it takes off from there. One of the things I like you, you kind of hint at it right there is like your detective is not a great detective, which I actually really enjoyed. I mean, Oh he's, no, he's, he's terrible. Like no, he's a good he's, cop. He's, like he's, he's got his, he's a good mentality, but he's, like he's a terrible he's, detective. He's, he's, he's dedicated to it and he believes in it and like he wants to do a good job, but like it wasn't what he was meant to do. Like he, he's a retired sports star and the reason the, the people in charge stuffed him into the role of chief detective is because his face was well known and he was well liked. And so he'd be a good, they figured he'd be a good liaison between them and uh, the, the rest of the, the passengers on board. Like he wasn't ever really supposed to, like it, he wasn't supposed to wield any real power, you know. He was dealing with drunken disorderlies. He was he was dealing with people who were maybe you know eating too much food or not exercising enough because this is a generation ship and all, you know it's it's a completely self-contained environment. So everything is it's it's a true zero waste society. And you know people who deviate from that and start and are wasting resources anyway, you got to bring them back into line. So like he was. He was selected because he was super popular, not because he was going to be good at it. <laughs> yeah, they, did, they didn't expect him to be good at it, which is which is a fun place to begin. And, and so, the generation ship to me is is very interesting. And uh, before we started recording, we kind of talked a little bit about how we've noticed that there are like generation ship stories are popping up suddenly. We've had three or four, four or five published in the last year, year and a half. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're coming out, and then uh, you know Kim Stanley Robinson's Aurora just came out. Yep, yep. And Cameron Hurley has a Generation Ship story coming next year. There are a few others uh, sort of scattered about, and I predict that Generation Ships are now on trend. I think so. I did not. Perhaps it was really lucky for me because when I sat down to start writing this, it was, uh, oh heck, it was t- more than two years ago now uh, when I sat down to write this one. And, uh, that, that crop hadn't started coming through yet. And so it would be pretty easy for somebody who's like, oh, well, hey, this is coming out on November 3rd. He's obviously just trying to chase after, you know, what these, these other people have done. It's like, well, guess what? The publishing industry is uh, a lot slower than that. And, uh, this, this thing was being, the keel of this thing was laid down way before any of those other things were being published and way before I knew they existed, you know? 
In fact, when when Ascension on Sci-Fi came out, I was terrified that it was going to suck. Because I'm like, oh man, this is going to sink my book. And then it did suck, but it sucked so bad that nobody remembers it already. So, hey, I guess everything's fine. <laughs> so the uh, <laughs> I have a theory about why generation ships might be on trend. And of course, we know they were once very popular, you know, things like Earthseed by Pamela Sargent and other things from kind of the 70s and 80s. Yeah, I mean, it's been decades. It has been, but those books were written in, during the Cold War essentially, mm-hmm. during when the fear was nuclear war, right? They would eradicate our ability to survive on planet Earth and that we would all kill each other and so we would have to escape this this dying planet. But we sort of had that conversation happening again, but now it's around climate change. These are conversations that we're having again a lot. And, and we've seen tons of these post-apocalyptic novels like uh, like Palabachic Loopies and, and Station Eleven and all these other things that have they're destroying our planet. And so I think we have people thinking about like how to move on from that. And and that's why we're seeing this this new glut of generation ships. Yeah, you know, that's that's interesting that you say it that way because um like I, I don't know if I would have come at it from quite that angle, but the the fact that the, the post apocalyptic stuff of all kinds, whether it be Walking Dead with zombies or whether it be uh Hunger Games, uh or you just just the, the, the popularity of the apocalyptic thing across genres, I think may have contributed to this because when I was, when I was coming up with the arc as a concept, I was like, uh, the way I described it to people when I was like laying out the outline was like, no, this is a post, post apocalypse. The apocalypse already happened, but now we have a society that is sur- not just surviving, but thriving and waiting to rebuild after the apocalypse. So it's like take it's in some ways I felt like it was kind of the next logical step, and I could see how the generation ship concept would play into that pretty well. You know, it's like because everything like for a while there we were just we were just surrounded by post apocalyptic stuff, and and even um you know even the popularity of uh, Mad Max Fury Road ties into that because that's another post apoc setting, and I mean that stuff's been big for a number of years now, and so maybe it's not so it maybe it's not so strange that a bunch of us without talking to each other about it all started to think, well, what comes after post-apoc? If we recognize that post-apocalyptic kind of is and always will be a functionally bleak milieu, right? It's sort of predicated on a depressing setting. Yeah. There really isn't anything more hopeful than a generation ship, right? Like you're packing all of humanity's hopes and dreams into this bubble. Yep. It's a last ditch, you know, last, last shot at the last shot you're taking at the universe to last, last roll the dice, all that. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's it's sort of the embodiment of of, of human hope, and so oh, I think we, yep. yeah, if you look at it from that perspective, it's, it's perhaps very logical that that would be a trend as mm-hmm. as things are not all that hopeful at home right now and in our fiction. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, don't know, I think we do it through that lens. Like it's kind of exciting to see. You know, like I'm hopeful that we're going to see more of that, like more of this concept of um, you know not utopia because I think utopia we all recognize is not that interesting of a story, but more hopeful narratives. Perhaps. Well, you see, and that's that's kind of interesting because, um, like, I've had now that I've had I've had the arc out in the hands of a, not only a bunch of beta readers, but now some like actual reviewers that are coming back in with it too. Um, you know, some of them had I've had very divergent views on the way they they viewed the society. Because some of them were like, "Well, this is it's like you know this is very this is very this is a very utopic society that you've built here." Like, you know, there's. Uh, you know, everyone has has free medical care provided, and there's plentiful food, and everyone's a vegetarian, and everyone seems to get along really well. But then there's the other people who are like, "Well, this is the most dystopian shit I have ever read," because of the fact everyone is so the so regimentally controlled and monitored 
And, and they're both, both viewpoints are true, but just depends on how you're looking at it, you know? Well, sure. And, and you have a class system very much in place. There's, yep, there's a, there's a class system. It just, that kind of developed, you know, uh, of its own accord. It is all toward a hopeful end, which is to establish humanity somewhere else. Uh, mm-hmm. which I think is, which I think is, is appealing. And, and feeding into that a little bit is, uh, without, without doing any spoilers, your, your villain, if you will, in this book is, is a bad guy. Yeah, you know, he is not a, he's not a, a good guy who's gone off the rails or, uh, somebody who thinks he's even doing something to better himself, right? He's really doing something that is patently bad. He's certainly not trying to better himself, um, because he, he's nihilistic. Right. And, but he's, he's nihilistic in a way that he thinks that his ends are still accomplishing good, just not for, just not for the people on board. Because he sees, because <laughs> he sees them as inherently bad. Right. So. Uh, yeah. but, but from the, from the POV of your protagonist, I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the book's written all from one POV. I'm pretty sure that's it is. right. Yeah. Yes, it is. His perspective, what, what the, what the bad guy is doing is patently evil. Oh, uh, Pat, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt. <laughs> and, I, and again, I think that's, I don't want to call it a throwback, because that makes the novel seem not modern, and I don't think that's the case at all. Because I think more and more in science fiction and fantasy, we've really trended toward villains who are, villains and heroes are both Less villainous and less heroic, right? It's very, very muddled and gray. Yeah, where you're, you're trying. I mean, you're, you're, you pick a side, but it's the, the, the reason you end up picking a side is, boy, the, the justifications keep getting thinner and thinner, don't they? Well, you, the side you pick is almost just built on who the author chooses to write from. That's exactly what I mean, though. Yeah. It's like you know, there's if you start actually sitting there and tallying stuff up, it's like. Mm. <laughs> It's almost like p- picking a sports team. It's like, well, this is the home team, so. Yeah, The Expanse is a great example, <laughs> which which I don't know if you've read The Expanse books. Oh, yeah, I'm totally caught up in them. I love them. And, and they're fantastic, but but as much as Holden is the hero, he's also, like, responsible for the death he's, of a lot of fucking people. <laughs> he's, he, Holden is an agent of chaos, uh, you know, and he, he believes he's doing good, um, but he is... Like in every situation he is in, he is so far above his pay grade, but he feels like he's, 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 he's motivated by his sense of morality to dis- to make decisions for everyone. It would be really easy for somebody within the Expanse universe to look at Holden and think he's just a complete shit. Like I can, I can totally see that. And there's, there's characters later on in the, in the books that come after him to kill him because of the, because of the, uh, you know, the after effects of some of the decisions he's made and you're sitting there going, well, they're not entirely wrong. Uh, right. Like, I don't actually want that to be the way it goes, but it's certainly not light side, dark side. Yeah. But I think, I think as a reader, uh, when you put the onus on your, on your reader to say, to really examine every character's motivations and make a moral judgment as an individual on every single character and decide like, where they fall on the spectrum of like whether I whether I like them or think they're doing the right thing. I think there's something very freeing about a about a book that just says like no no this is the side this is the good side that you want to root for and this is the side. I don't even do that in real life. I don't I don't examine everyone's motivations. Sometimes I just decide I don't like somebody. Maybe that's irresponsible of me, but it's true. 
I, I, sometimes I love sitting down and reading a book and just saying, like, I can just lose myself in this. And I think that's what the arc does very well. Instead of, like, focusing on, like, the really big moral issues, um, which, are, which are present in the book, which I didn't really set out to, to write about, but, like, the more, I, the, the more I started building the world out, um, you know, the more I realized it was getting tied in with a lot of the things that we're facing right now, like the security state, like income inequality, uh, like limited resources that we're facing here, like our uh, unsustainable food production system. Like these were all themes that ended up cropping up in the book, but they weren't things that I was going to harp on. They were just things just like, hey, this is this is something that influenced and and guided and the characters and, you know, was a part of the tally of during their decision-making processes, but I'm not trying to pass judgment on them. They just exist. Everybody else can make their own judgments on whether or not they made the right, the right calls. But instead I was just trying to write what I felt was going to be a, a decent, fun little murder mystery thriller first. That was, that had a sci-fi background to it, like a, you know, a sci-fi desktop, if you will. Um, so that there was going to be some cross genre appeal for it. So that people who maybe don't like sci-fi would be able to sit down or, but, but do like murder mysteries and thrillers would be able to sit down and read it and enjoy it and go and, and not really realize until the end. It's like, oh crap, I just read a sci-fi book and liked it. And I actually think the way that you use sports in the book kind of helps you with that, right? Uh, you have this, uh, this game called, you call it zero, yep. but, but seems a lot like football, but you don't, you don't overly describe it, but that, but the sports culture is is not dissimilar from our own, which I think has that sort of easing effect of yeah. Well, and uh, like my my Twitter handle is Stealthy Geek, uh, and the the reason for that is because I love f- football, American football, not that game of footsie they play overseas. But I, I love I love football. Um, I ride motorcycles. I drive a muscle car. Like I I do things that uh, are are seen in other circles as being more traditionally masculine. Um, I work out a lot, you know, things like that. And so I, but at the same time, I, you know, I have a Lord of the Rings tattoo on my arm. I have an armband tattoo of the script from the one ring. Okay. I'm a nerd too, like big time, but I wanted to be able to blend those things because I think that the distinctions between them are completely artificial and unnecessary. So I wanted to try and write a book that would appeal to all of the people that I know. No matter what they do, no matter what they're into. So that's what I was, yeah, that's what I was going for. And that's why I included a, a sports hero as the, as the main character, because I thought that that would, that would not only be kind of, it would not only be different from the perspective of so many people who are writing and reading in, uh, you know, in the genre, but it would also make the transition easier for people who aren't used to the genre. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll just get on my soapbox here with you for a second. Nerds that are like, I don't like sports, I don't get it. I'm like, it's there. there's nothing more nerdy than a sports nerd. Like, the the obsession and depth to which oh people get engaged in sports is exactly the same engagement and depth. You can't even... It is identical. It is identical. They are the same people, whether they're whether they're prepared to admit it or not. We, but we, yeah, the, the people who get super into sports are the people who get super into D and D stats. There's there's no difference. It just it just depends on what on what you nerded out on when you were at, at that formative period in your life. And for me, mm-hmm. it was both. But yeah, I, I talk to people and I'm like, I, fantasy sports, like fantasy baseball, is basically the equivalent of like. 
the guy that tracks the Hugo stats. You know what I mean? Like, it's the exact same Oh, yeah, finish. totally. Unless, unless you're actually playing in the sport, like, unless you're being paid to play the sport, you're a sports nerd. <laughs> Come that's on. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's that's the end of the conversation. And the thing, but the thing that I like, because I, I hang out at sports bars, you know, I was I'm gonna be over on Sunday watching the Packer game at, at one of my one of my favorite places on Sunday. Um, and you know what I don't hear when I'm around sports nerds? I never hear them brag about how much D and D they're not playing. I never hear that out of sports nerds ever. But when I'm at conventions and stuff, or like when I'm interacting with, with more traditional quote unquote nerds online, you'll hear people that are like taking pride in the fact they don't understand the first thing about football. It's like, okay, you are not cool defined on what you don't know. That isn't how this works. <laughs> Drives me nuts. It took me a second to figure out where you were going with that. But yeah, you're right. The, uh, the, the big NFL fan is not, is not taking pride in the fact that they, uh, they don't have a 20 sided die in their pocket. No, yeah. no. They don't, they don't do that. <laughs> they don't, they don't care. They just enjoy what they're enjoying in the moment. Just do that. And I think that's a hard thing for, for those of us that are very into sports and very into SFF and cons in general. Like I find it when I go to conventions, like I actually like need to suppress my sports geek, my sports fandom mm-hmm. because it, because it makes me stand out oddly. I've worn my Aaron Rodgers jersey and my Super Bowl 45 uh, hat you know, to conventions before, and had people literally ask me if I was lost. I'm like, no, I'm one of the presenters, actually. <laughs> Are you lost? Thank you, though. Yeah, I feel like if I ever get George R. R. Martin on the on the podcast, like, we're just going to talk Giants. Like, that's, you know, <laughs> yeah. That's my hook. You know, George, I'm not going to ask about your book. We're just going to talk about We're not going to talk about Game of Thrones spoilers at all. We're just going to talk about the Giants. Yeah, Let's yeah, do yeah. this. Yeah. yeah, and of course, nobody will listen, but it'll be <laughs> fine. Uh, back to arc a little bit. So you make a, an interesting choice in the book that is both a, ne- a necessary choice given the milieu, but one that I find interesting couched within the current conversations that we have going on in genre. Yeah. And that is that you chose all people who were the, the best and the brightest and the most exceptional. And there is cultural and ethnic diversity. Did you just say like that's what they would do because that's the science behind it? Or did you actually worry about that a little bit? No, I worried, uh, but I, I put a lot of thought into it, and it's like, okay, look, if you're, because the the deal is they're they're putting together this ship. It's ten miles long. It's got, you know, two hundred and some odd years worth of consumables on board, and it has one shot to get to this other planet. Because of that, it can fit fifty thousand people on it, and that's it. And at the time this that this thing launches, there's uh, the projections say there should be about ten billion people on the planet. So if you're going from 10 billion down to 50,000, if you pick the 50,000 best, smartest, most athletic, healthiest people free of, free of genetic diseases or free of dispositions towards genetic maladies, if you pick 50,000 people, even out of today's population, you'd have basically superheroes. That's also what you'd need. Um, because you, you're putting these folks on the ship and you need their, you need their offspring generations from now to be the strongest, smartest people they can because they're going to be rebuilding civilization from scratch with only the population of a small to medium sized town to do it. You're on a completely alien planet with, with, you know, resources that they're going to have to dig up out of the ground and smelt themselves. All right. So. The choice of whether or not to send the brightest and the and the healthiest and the ones that are have the least 
predispositions towards diseases. It, it wasn't a choice at all. Like that, that is what would have to happen because in, during the time that you're, that you're, you know, in flight, you, you can't be dealing with these things like, um, you can't be dealing with diabetes uh, towards birth defects or, or, you know, maladies that happen later in life. Like you can't, you, you don't have the resources, you don't have the energy. And so you're, if you're going to try and set the species up for survival, you've got this, you've got this bottleneck. Well, you better put the best ones that you've got on board. Cause there's not, I mean, what, what really when you're talking about, there's not a lot of them left. They're very, very few. I mean, 50,000 sounds like a big number, but that'll fit inside any NFL stadium. Pulling from the world's population, you could probably find 50,000 LeBron Jameses. Basically. Yeah, basically, you know. <laughs> you could find 50,000 LeBron Jameses who also had, you know, uh, particle physics degrees. Right. And that's the, that's the level of person that you'd be looking at. Now, there was, in the selection process, yes, some, some politics played into it because you were trying to, you were trying to get a, gen, a genetically diverse population, not just a really, you know, an Adonis-like population, but you're also trying to get a, a, a genetically diverse population to to fend off uh, inbreeding uh, markers and, and um, to allow for disease resistance to continue onwards and, and all that sort of thing. And uh, actually, not long after I started writing the book, there's a couple of uh, actual legitimate scientists who came out and said, if you're going to build a generation ship, you should have at least 40,000 people on it. And I was pretty happy with myself when when that number was was thrown around. But let's but let's be honest. You made sure Tom Brady and Giselle didn't get on, right? Like, no, no, to hell with them. Yeah, you, no. kept, you kept them off. Nope. just ten thousand Aaron Rodgers clones. That's all that got on. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, this has been fun. The Ark is out on November third, and uh, I I read it and, and very much enjoyed it, and uh, would encourage folks to check it out. Appreciate you coming on tonight, Pat. Thanks for having me. It's good to hear from you again. Uh, we will see you at Confusion in January. Absolutely. I've already got my hotel room. Awesome. All right. This has been Rocket Talk.